Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Good evening and welcome to Bangor Worldwide 2020 online. Behind me is the King's Hall in Central Avenue here in Bangor. The building is currently used by the Congregational Church, but it was here that the meetings of the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention were first held in 1937. They ran from Saturday the 25th of September until Sunday the 3rd of October. Mr. Herbert Mateer, who was the brains behind the convention, invited 18 speakers from various parts of the world to come and participate in the convention. They included people from Spain, China, Brazil, Nigeria, Sudan, South Africa, and India. Two meetings, afternoon and evening, were held, along with two half nights of prayer, over the course of the week. The following year, a daily morning prayer meeting was introduced. And when that convention had concluded, a weekly Monday morning prayer meeting was begun. And that meeting continues until the present day here in the King's Hall. Since its inception, the missionary convention has run every year without interruption, even including the years of the Second World War. Mr. Mateer could not have foreseen the circumstances in which we presently find ourselves, but I'm quite sure that he would have put his shoulder to the wheel rather than see the convention cancelled and would have given his best energies to promote and to produce and to deliver the convention in online form. We hope that you will be able to join us as often as you can during this incoming week. We know that it's not the same watching online as it is being here in person, but we encourage you nevertheless to enter into the praise and to the prayer, to allow your horizons to be broadened and your heart to be softened as you hear about how the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Trap. 
Let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, in these strange times in which we live, teach us afresh the meaning of almightiness, that whatever assails us, we may have a deep and steady confidence in your power to guide, to deliver, and to overcome. We praise you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We praise you that he gave himself up for us all in death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We praise you for his glorious resurrection, sealing his victory over sin and death, and for his triumph over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Sovereign Lord, remind us that all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to Jesus and that he has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to go into all the world and to speak of him crucified, risen and reigning. Be with us in these meetings, even though we are scattered rather than gathered. May your spirit empower the words that are to be spoken and quicken the hearts that shall receive them that the place which this work has in your holy will and your mighty purposes may be faithfully murdered in the life of your church to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. How many words do you use each day? The words you speak, read, write, type, text. Words are essential to our spiritual, economic and social lives. So imagine, what would it be like if the words of your language had never been written down? Or if they had, you couldn't read or write them? No emails, no messaging, no browsing, no books, no Bible. The Bible changes lives, and so does the work of translating the Bible. Translation teams are writing down the languages of some of the most marginalized people on earth, often for the first time ever. The effects of this ripple out beyond Christians and churches to touch the lives of whole communities. For when people learn to read and write their language, it means that they can communicate in new ways, access technology they've been cut off from, gain new opportunities to get work, learn their legal rights, making it harder for corrupt officials to abuse them, and empowering women and girls. It means that parents can read the correct dosage of medicines to give their children and their children's education is transformed, and that everyone can engage with God's Word. Poverty has many faces, spiritual, economic, social, physical. The ripple effects from translating the Bible plays a part in reducing them all. This is why Wycliffe Bible Translators works with such urgency, so that everyone still waiting for the Bible can experience the transformation God brings through His Word and also benefit from the wider ripple effects that come through each translation. This vital work needs your support, and it needs your giving. For prayer points and online donations, go to wycliffe.org.uk slash welcome. This year, Bangor Worldwide is launching a new initiative called Friends of Worldwide. As a friend of Worldwide, you can help to support and to grow the work of the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention. All you have to do is contribute a regular monthly amount of your choice. 
please have a look at this little video, which will tell you more about how to become a friend of Worldwide. I absolutely love the week of Bangor Worldwide as we gather together in the mornings to pray together, then the incredible Bible teaching and in the evening as we hear from people, from missionaries right around our world of what God is doing, we're already beginning to pray through and think through and plan for 21 and 22. And you know, it's incredible that this ministry has been going now for, this is the 84th year, but it just doesn't happen. It costs money. And it, for that week, it costs approximately 30,000 pounds to run. And so in thinking through, how do we continue this ministry? How do we realize this vision that started all those years ago? And how do we engage people in mission and keep that profile there? And we would love to invite you to prayerfully consider joining with us, to committing to be a friend of Bangor Worldwide. If you would like to commit to giving perhaps five, maybe 10 pounds per month to enable us to continue this ministry. But in any commitment, any friendship, there are always two sides and we are going to be committed to you as well. We will send out to you a monthly prayer update of what is happening with the missionaries that we are supporting, enable you to pre-book for special events and our opening nights and pre-book seats. And as a bonus, if you sign up before the 31st of August, we will give you a free copy of this book by Gary Miller, Need to Know. Our heart is to channel money out to the missionaries, to serve these people that are coming, that are speaking, these partners that we have all over the world. Because while we all cannot go, we can give, we can pray. So as we step out in faith and as we plan the next few years, we would love you to join us because we believe as we do take that step and we believe that God will provide through his people, we would ask you to join us in praying that he will and this will continue so as we can pass this baton on to the next generation and the next, that someone is standing here in Ward Park in Bangor in another 85 years talking about what God has done through this ministry. This evening, our mission input comes from Richard Evans and Lindsay Brown. Together with his wife, Louisa, Richard joined the staff team at All Nations Christian College in 2013. He is a member of the senior leadership team and program leader for the En Route program of cross-cultural mission training courses. He and Louisa are currently involved in catalyzing and supporting mission training courses in various nations around the world. Lindsay, who is a native of Wales, has been involved with his wife Anne in student ministry globally for 40 years. He has served as General Secretary of IFES, the International Director of the Lausanne Movement, and is currently Director of the Fellowship of Evangelists in the Universities of Europe, a network of 60 evangelists across Europe who speak at University Mission Weeks. Following the mission input, we have a short challenge from Gary Miller on the gospel-shaped life from 1 John. Gary served as a PCI minister here in Hamilton Road in Bangor and then in Hoth and Malahide on the north side of Dublin 
before taking up his current position as principal of the Queensland Theological College in Brisbane. Tonight, Gary will focus on 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where a gospel-shaped view of ourselves is the basis for a gospel-shaped life. You might want to have your Bible handy when that time comes. Greetings from All Nations Christian College and from myself, Richard Evans, and my wife, Louisa. Uh, we're based here in Harlow in Essex in the UK at the moment. And the All Nations building, at least, is in Ware in Hertfordshire, about five miles away from here. But we're really delighted to be speaking to the Bangor Worldwide Global Community on behalf of the All Nations Global Community, about 12 to 15,000 people who have attended and been through different courses, either on site here in this building or online or through our new On The Move program as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, as we will about mission training movements, which is what the On The Move program seems to be catalyzing in different places around the world. But first of all, just to start in the scriptures, always a good place to begin. May God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face shine upon us, that his ways may be known on the earth, his salvation among all the nations. And I say that because now for the first time in human history, we are a truly global church with fellowships and congregations in pretty much every nation on the planet. We are engaged not just locally in our local neighborhoods, towns and cities and nations, but we're also engaged globally with churches in different parts of the world as well. And so that's why I put here, it's a global mission on behalf of a global church. Very exciting to be a part of what God is doing at the moment. For us, for Louisa and myself, this is one of our favorite verses and really sort of sums up what mission is for us. It says, or Paul says, we loved you, you Thessalonians, so much that we were delighted to share with you two things, not only the gospel of God, which we must, but also our very lives as well. The two really go together. Our words and our deeds and who we are are really an expression of the way that we engage and do mission. We want to share our lives as well as share the gospel. And as we share, the li share our lives, share the gospel too. Really exciting, very, very challenging to do. The other thing that we find challenging is this, and this is what we kind of do at All Nations, is we learn to deal with difference together well. We learn to be an orange amongst apples, if you will. We learn to be an intercultural, missional, learning, and loving community. We are a very diverse community, and Louisa will talk about that in a minute. And as we navigate those differences, they can be key for our learning, especially as we seek to go and navigate and uh, be engaged in mission with people from different backgrounds and different cultures. So this is a key skill, a key thing that we need to be engaged with and involved with. Another verse that we love and also talks about how we want to engage in mission. Paul says this to the church in Rome. He says, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. 
And part of this, and as we engage as a global community, is that we move intentionally towards one another, but also we take others in addition to ourselves. We move away from ourselves, but we also add to ourselves through the relationships and the friendships that we form as a global church engaged in God's mission. If somebody was to ask me what mission is, I've been working on a definition for years and every year I adjust it and shape it and uh, alter it and so forth as I, as I learn more and as I see new things. But at the moment it would be that mission is ordinary Christian people like you and me doing extraordinary God-inspired endeavors or things. Why? Because we seek to bring transformation under the grace of God to God's world, but also see all nations give glory to him. So we are God's people engaged in God's work, in God's world, to God's glory. And then before I hand over to Louisa, a final thought from me, God is a fountain of sending love. This is what David Bosch uh, famous missiologist, no longer with us. He shared this, I think, on page 396 of his sort of world-famous book on mission. And he says, this is the deepest source of mission. It is impossible to go any deeper still. He says, there is mission because God loves people. God loves us. We love him in return. And he teaches us to love others as he loves them. Love or the overflow of God's love really is the source of everything that we do. I put down some missional themes there on the slide, but also some missional expressions. We talk a lot about evangelism, discipleship, church planting, creative arts in mission, creation care and mission, community transformation, prayer, worship, peace and justice issues. And we look at those at All Nations and we see those merging and fusing together as we go and engage in mission in different contexts, whether that's to our neighbors or whether that's going halfway around the world. Uh, mission is both local and global. But Louisa will share a little bit more about All Nations. The first thing is about who we are as a college. What do we value? The first one is that we are evangelical. And that means that everything that we do and teach is biblically based. Um, the scriptures are important to inform not just um, you know, what we do, but how we think and who we become. Secondly, we are interdenominational. This means that here at All Nations, we have people from the Anglican Church or the Baptist or the Brethren Church uh, or the Christian Reformed Church, um, Pentecostal churches, different people coming together uh, to study together. Thirdly, we are integral mission focused. And this means that we combine all the different ex missional expressions that Richard talked about earlier to do missions so that we are able to minister to the whole person in God's world. Fourthly, we are cross-cultural, and we will see that in the next slide. We are a cross-cultural community. Each year, we bring together probably between 25 to 30 nationalities to study together in a group of about 100 uh, students. We worship together, 
we work on our discipleship together, we work on prayer together. And because we come from so many different cultural backgrounds, we bring all of those different expressions of all of these things together to be the old nations community. We believe that the best form of cross-cultural training is to actually experience the cross-cultural aspects even in our classrooms, even in our daily living. And so we try to have a cross-cultural class. Um, hopefully the 25, 30 nationalities we represented in the class, the content itself should come from all over the world, not just say from the West or from the East, but from all the different contexts. The location, hopefully if we can take our train to different parts of the world, that would improve our training. Our faculty, we are working hard to diversify um, our faculty so that our teaching staff come from the different parts of the world and also within the context of friendship that we learn because we are in relationship with each other. It's not just a formal um, setting that we learn from, but actually is in the informal interactions, say at lunch or in games or just in sitting together and sharing life together. What are some of our courses? Well, we have three sets of uh, main courses, if you like. We have the on-route uh, on suite of programs, which range from five days to 13 weeks. Um, there are residential courses, there are online courses, but we also have um, two accredited courses, accredited by the Open Universities, uh, Open University, the bachelor's program, um, which you can do from one to three years and get a certificate, diploma, or degree, um, and a master's program, which we run mainly by Zoom, but also online together in what we call flexible delivery methods. Um, and so there are six different uh, awards that you can do um, through the master's program. Um, there are also sh other short courses which are there in the blue box at the bottom. But for more information, please visit our website on www.allnations.ac.uk. So just to try and bring those ideas together, uh, we are engaged in God's mission, which is now from everywhere to everywhere. Every part of the globe is now engaged in God's mission uh, through everyone to everyone so it's people moving from place to place uh, that are making this happen the things that are fueling and driving that are prayer in various locations and different groups coming together all over the world but also because people are working together uh, as partners but i prefer to say as as friends uh, and engaging in god's mission together and of course, we cannot underestimate the role, and we neither should we, the role of the local church in mission. It has been our privilege to work with many different local churches all around the world, all excited by and engaged in God's mission. And so for us, working on the En Route program, uh, Louisa and I, and we head up the non-accredited En Route course, we have a thing we call En Route on the Move, and that's taking some of our courses to different places around the world, uh, but also seeing them as they, as they land in those places, done in different ways, in different formats. Uh, some of the content is, is different and contextualized and more appropriate uh, to the needs and the issues that people are, are facing in those places as they seek to go from that place and be engaged in God's mission locally and 
globally. So let me give some examples of how En Route On The Move seems to be catalyzing these sort of mission training movements in different places. Uh, we've been now to Holland and we've been working with partners there and we will start our first course in Holland in May 2021. That'll be a one week intensive course. Uh, that will be largely with our All Nations uh, alumni who will be running and teaching that course. So we're really, really looking forward uh, to that next year. At the same time, at the moment, we are engaged in an online uh, mission training course together with a church in Chile. And uh, that's the Second Baptist Church of Iquique, uh, a very missionally minded church. They have about 65 students, both from their church, other churches in Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, uh, Mexico, Argentina and Brazil coming together to learn together. And uh, Louisa and I, we've been teaching uh, some of those sessions with them. Absolutely amazing to be involved with that. For the last two to three years, we've now been engaged in mission training from Romania. We've seen about 30 different people uh, being trained in the En Route program, which has been run in over four weeks over the year. Uh, again, very exciting to work with the Baptist Seminary there in Bucharest with our friends there. And uh, we will be starting another course with probably another 15 to 20 students uh, in the fall. And then at the same time, uh, for the last couple of years, not this year, sadly, because of the pandemic, but the last couple of years have taken us uh, to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, lots of churches very excited about engaging in mission, both locally and globally from there as well. And so we were delighted uh, last year to have a class of about 200, 250 people engaged in mission training from various different churches from across Kinshasa. And then finally, just for now, I just wanted to bring to your attention uh, a work we do for folks from a Chinese uh, speaking background. We call it Engage Asia. Uh, and that will be an intensive online via Zoom program uh, that we will be running from the 1st to the 7th of October in friendship, let me say that, with Chinese Overseas Christian Mission, COCM. Uh, and that's been a really fruitful and wonderful time together with those guys there in Milton Keynes as well. Why do we do this? Well, because another definition that I have of mission is that mission is really working together with Christian friends to release one another to fulfill the calling that we believe God has for each of us, our families, our churches, our organizations, our cities, our nations. And uh, those things are done as we come together, cooperate together, love one another, and thereby love the people around us. And then finally, just to go back to the Psalms where I started, we are a global church engaged in a global mission, both global and local. And we want to see all the nations that you have made come and worship before you, Lord, that they will bring glory to your name. Thank you so much for your time, just to sort of tune in and listen to what we've been able to share. Uh, we would, of course, love to see you come and engage with All Nations and the courses that we have, uh, either on site or online or through one of our On The Move expressions. Uh, but please feel free to get in touch with myself, with Louisa, uh, to take a look at the website. Uh, we would love to communicate with you. We'd love to see you engaged in a cross-cultural mission training 
course. Many thanks for your time.
a delight to be with you uh, this evening. I'm sorry I can't see you face to face, but feel privileged to have this opportunity to address you this evening uh, with a message from Scripture. Let me start by asking you a question as I'm speaking to you from uh, Wales. Supposing I came to Northern Ireland and I said to you, the whole church in Wales has fallen apart. I need somebody to go across from Ireland to uh, be used to resurrect or turn, turn, turn around the church. I wonder what kind of person you would select to send from your community. You might choose somebody who's very experienced, maybe with 20, 30, 35 years of ministry, somebody who'd been a church planter or had expertise um, in conflict resolution. Um, well, you may be surprised then to hear that this was the context in which this evening's passage was written. It's one of Paul's very last letters, um, probably written from prison, uh, to Timothy. And most commentators think that Paul wasn't released again from prison. So all he can do is pray and appoint a successor in a time when the church has collapsed. We know this because in chapter uh, 1, verse uh, 15 of this second letter to Timothy, Paul speaks about how everybody has deserted him, by which he means everybody's deserted the gospel and the cause of the gospel. So um, many people tend to think Paul's missionary journeys were victory, victory, victory all the time. But here we see the church in this part of what is modern day Turkey has collapsed in an area about the size of Wales or even Ulster. Who should go and be used by God to resurrect or rebuild the church? Well, Paul chooses Timothy, and it's a bit of a surprise because we know three things about Timothy from Paul's two letters to him. First of all, we know that he was young in his first letter to him. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, don't let anybody despise your youthfulness. And in this second chapter, verse 22, he says, shun youthful passions. We know he was frequently ill uh, because in his first letter to him, in chapter 5, verse 23, he says, take some wine for your because of your frequent illnesses. Thirdly, we know he had a timid disposition. Now, it may have been because Timothy was fatherless. It seems his father died when he was young. We know he was raised by his godly mother and grandmother. Sometimes when people lose a parent when they're young, it causes them to be somewhat withdrawn or timid uh, in temperament. Well, all these three things are surprising for um, a replanter of the church somebody who's young, frequently ill, and timid. What this highlights, therefore, is that God often takes those who are aware of their weaknesses and inadequacies and uses them to do his work in cross-cultural service. Given that background, knowing his situation, Paul gives five exhortations to Timothy uh, in order to encourage him to set out on this work of renewing the church in Asia Minor. Now these are five principles or five exhortations which if he did um, would make a huge difference to anybody thinking of serving cross-culturally but incidentally there are five key biblical principles or exhortations which all believers whether we leave Ulster, uh, Ireland or the UK at all in the future and if we stay here they still would have a revolutionary impact on our lives if we apply them uh, personally.
So let's work through Paul's five exhortations. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says to Timothy, knowing his background, be strong, not in your own strength, not stiff upper lip, but be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting he starts here because grace is the fountain from which all Christian joy and service flows. You will know that the word is really almost an invention of the Bible. I did a word count on it the other week and listed, uh, found at least 130 references to the word grace in the New Testament. It's also mentioned about 30 times in the Old Testament, by the way. It means God's sheer undeserved mercy towards us. And it's, um, it's a unique part of the revelation from Scripture about God's person and his treatment of us. God treats us with his great grace, his undeserved mercy, when we don't deserve it, uh, in two ways. But first of all, I would say that you look in vain for the concept of grace in other religious writings. It's certainly not there in the Quran. Uh, the Quran has 99 names for God. But there are three or four things about God. It doesn't say that only the scriptures say. The scriptures teach us uniquely that God is personal, that God is loving, that God is revealed as a father, and that God is the God of all grace. So there's no time when you can go to him and say, Lord, I, knew, I need grace today, when he will ever say to you, I'm sorry, I've dished out all the grace that I've got for today. There's no, none left for you. No, he's the God of all grace, and it's overflowing like a fountain, like a waterfall. Uh, available to his children and it's given in two ways first of all God's grace is given to us uh, as a means of salvation his grace is available to us through the work which Jesus Christ did on the cross as our substitute taking the punishment for the sin which we deserved as someone has said in karma in Hinduism the teaching is you sin you pay but in the Christian gospel the teaching is you sin, I pay. And that's possible because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I remember uh, preaching on the grace of God on one occasion uh, in Argentina uh, in a student conference. And the night before, uh, a very fine missionary who'd been working for 40 years in the South Pacific spoke before me. Uh, he'd been involved in revival. The night on which I spoke, I was speaking about God's justifying grace, the means by which he declares us innocent because of Christ's death on our behalf. After I spoke, I went out. It was a beautiful anticyclonic night, clear sky, uh, so rare in Wales and Northern Ireland. And as I looked up at the stars, this missionary came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, thank you so much for speaking about God's grace tonight. He said, of course, I preached on it many times myself. But whenever I hear somebody speaking it, I'm deeply moved. I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, during the Second World War, I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I was responsible for the torture and the deaths of many people. Then he said, I met the Lord Jesus. I became a follower, a Christian, soon after the war. He led me to my wife. We got married. God called us into Christian ministry. Then he called us to be missionaries, pioneer missionaries, actually, in Irianjaya in the South Pacific, working amongst headhunters. And he said, I saw revival break out. On one occasion, he said, I baptized several thousand people on one Sunday. It was exhausting. So do you see, he say, said, why I think the grace of God is so wonderful. Knowing my background and some of the things that I did, not only did he forgive me and save me, not only did he then call me into ministry, 
I need to pioneer ministry. Uh, I was entrusted with that, but he used me in revival. He said, such is the depth, the profundity, and the wonder of God's grace. Came home to me on another occasion when I was doing a Bible study in Paris with some students. And I was talking about a verse which is found only three times in the Old Testament in the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's the same phrase which says, where God says, I'll remember your sins no more. I happen to mention this verse uh, and pointed, pointed out that this displays the willful for, forgetfulness of God, as it were, because of his grace. And one student shouted out, hallelujah. I was surprised because she'd been in the Bible study for a year. She came from an Anglican background in England. Anglicans didn't used to shout hallelujah much in those days. And she was an introvert, so I was surprised by her reaction. I didn't want to put her on the spot, though, so I didn't say anything. But three weeks later, she came to see me privately, and she said, you know you talked about God remembering our sins no more. Do you think that applies to all the things we've done wrong? I said, sure, what's the problem? She said, well, I'm 22 now. When I was 16, I had an abortion. I came from a middle-class family. My mother pressurized me. I just feel so dirty. I feel God can't use me. Do you think it's too late for me? I said, read the verse again. Does it say I will remember your sins no more in brackets, except for abortion? No. It says I'll remember your sins no more, as the French would say, point, full stop, end of story. Go, don't do it again, and serve the Lord in his strength. That's the depth of God's grace. Now my question to you is, are you living in the light of that God's grace? Not only do you know God's grace technically, or can you recite the doctrinal two times table about the grace of God? Have you received it and embraced it? And are you living in the light of it? It produces joy and a desire to serve the Lord Jesus. But God's grace is often given to us in order to help us uh, in the midst of difficulties. His grace is, is sufficient to us each day to sustain us in the midst of tough times. Whatever those difficulties are, whether it's a physical suffering, uh, adversity in the workplace, uh, hostility from people who are opposed to our faith, or whatever. This come home to me, came home to me very powerfully some years ago when I was speaking at a conference called Word Alive to a couple of thousand students. And that evening, you know, sometimes you hear a, a testimony and a story, it remains with you for a long time. This one did. It was an interview with Professor Sir Norman Anderson, a great lawyer, one of the most brilliant minds I ever met. He was 85 years of age. Near the end of his life, actually, it was the last time he spoke in public. He died not too long afterwards. In front of all these students, they must have agreed the questions. A young curate posed a question to him. He said, Professor Anderson, you're 85 years of age. You followed the Lord Jesus for 70 years. You had three children. They all predeceased you. One committed suicide. Two had hereditary diseases. Your wife also has senile dementia. She can no longer recognize you. So you've got no one to left you to leave your resources to, and your wife can't re recognize you. Do you ever ask the question, why me? I was amazed by his response. Quick as a flash, he said, I never asked the question, why me? But I do ask the question, why not me? I'm not promised in a fallen world that these things won't happen to me. Believers have ca cancer just as unbelievers do. Believers can be on planes when they come down, just as unbelievers do. The difference between us and the unbeliever, he said, is I have the grace of God, which doesn't eradicate pain, but it ameliorates or reduces its potency in three ways. 
The grace of God is given to me first through the promises of God in scripture, which offer me the hope of heaven. Secondly, secondly through the comfort which the Holy Spirit, a God's unseen self, brings to all believers in times of difficulty. And thirdly, the grace of God is made available through the community of God's people who gather around in times of difficulty to support us. I thought that was a very powerful answer and it stayed with me ever since. Are you drawing on the grace of God? The grace of God is both salvific, it's the means by which God saves us through Christ's work, but it's also a means of sustaining sustenance uh, in the Christian life in the midst of difficulties. Timothy need to, needed to hear this given that he was timid and prone to frequent illnesses. You may be too. I, I can't say anything more important to you this evening than be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. But Paul moves quickly on to his second exhortation in verse 2, where he talks about the fact that he had heard the message of the gospel from faithful men. He was passing it on to Timothy, and Timothy should pass it on to other faithful men. That's four generations. In the first chapter, he said to Timothy, guard the gospel. Now he's saying, pass it on. So the second mark of the best cross-cultural missionary workers and the second mark of mature Christians, wherever they're living, is that they deliberately invest in other people. We're living in an increasingly selfish society. And you know, sometimes you can talk to people and if you ask them questions about themselves, they will talk endlessly about their situation, but they never ask you about questions. That's a mark of a selfish person. The mark of a mature, mature person generally and a mature Christian is that they show genuine interest in others. And beyond that, the Christian will always seek to invest the, the, the substance of biblical truth and the benefits of their Christian experience in the lives of others. You know, the two mistakes often the Christians make in terms of investment. Uh, there are some who love to pass on the great truths of Scripture doctrinally, but they err on the side of trying to make sure people have crossed their T's and dot, dotted their I's doctrinally. So they invest or pass on the truths, but they don't give it themselves. It's rather distant and cold. That's not enough. The other type of person gives themselves wholeheartedly, and they're drained at the end of sharing. I've seen some people like this in student ministry. They're up till two o'clock in the morning. Uh, dialoguing with people, listening, absorbing what the other person is saying, and then they're shattered the following day. That's not much good either. The model that Paul gives us, you read his two letters to Timothy, is whereby he says, one, you know I've passed on the deposit of truth to you. Two, I gave of my very self. So it's not just an intellectual transaction. It's the giving of the self, but not, not only the self, passing on the deposit of truth as we share and engage with people. Now ask yourself, who invested in you? Who shaped you? Who helped you? I remember doing an interview with the BBC Radio in Wales once, and the interviewer said to me, oh, you've worked with many great Christian leaders, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, Billy Graham, George Brewer, and, and others, Tim Keller, Don Carson, all these names. Which of them influenced you most, Lindsay? Which of those men influenced you most? I said, none of them, actually. The one who influenced me most was my grandmother. Because when I was seven, my parents put me to live with her. My grandfather died suddenly. 
I think the plan was for me to be there for a few weeks. I stayed for 12 years. She invested in me. She loved me unconditionally. She cared for me. She sent me to a Sunday school on our tough housing estate where I heard the gospel, resistant at first, but then decided to follow the Lord Jesus. Then she said, read the Bible to me every night. And I read to her every, year for six, every night for six years before I went to university, just the two of us living together. She shaped me. Even though she left school at 13, I thank God for her. Who shaped you? Turn aside and thank God for them. And then a corollary question. Who are you shaping? In whom are you investing? The mark of the mature Christian is that he or she will always look to invest in others and pass on the deposit of truth. Please don't just be a pew warmer who all they do on Sundays go up to the pastor and say lovely word and keep it like a sponge. There are so many Christians like that. That's not what God calls us to as disciples. We are called to pass it on and invest in others. And if you're not yet investing in other people, ask God to help you deliberately invest in someone in the next year. Might be a child, might be a grandchild, might be a neighbor, might be somebody else who's lonely in the church. I had this one friend who is a professor of nutrition in Boston University, in Harvard University in Boston. He lost his wife. And then I went to visit him in the retirement home. He was walking with a Zimmer living in two rooms. I thought he'd feel sorry for himself. I said, how do you spend each day, Jim? By this time he was 93. He said, at the beginning of each day, Lindsay, I ask the Lord to lead me people in whom I can invest and help. So I can justify having one more earth to walk, one more day to walk on God's earth. Then at the end of the day, I ask myself, in whom have I invested today? He said, every day I deliberately either email somebody or phone somebody or when I go down to the refectory, I look for somebody sitting on their own so I can sit with them to encourage them. And he said, it gives me perspective about my own situation. When you invest in others, you will find out that many other people have much bigger problems than yourself. And it'll cause you to be thankful to God for all his graces shown to you and his kindnesses. But also you'll have the joy of investing in others. Invest in others. The church will grow as a result. I always remember I had a friend like that in the church in Southampton, always investing in others. He was like an over-enthusiastic puppy. And I asked the pastor of the church what, what he was like to have him in the church. He said, well, of course, he's over-enthusiastic, Lindsay. But he said, if I had 10 people like that in the church, I'd be the happiest pastor in England. How many pastors would love to have people like that? They make the best missionaries, by the way, too and the most influential Christians. The third thing that Paul, the third exhortation Paul brings is um, to endure hardness in verse three, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, because a soldier seeks to please his commanding officer. Of course, what he's getting at here is preparedness for sacrifice. If you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it may mean that some people may mock you, and it's unusual to find overt hostility and persecution in the UK these days, though that may well be growing in some homes and in some workplaces. But often you face cynicism, which can be tougher to take sometimes. But we do know that hardness will come our way uh, if we are good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need to give you many illustrations about this because I'm sure you could share many. You've heard many exhortations to be prepared to be sacrificed. 
sacrificing our reputation or desire for a lot of money with a big job um, or fear of leaving home to go to another country because we'd leave behind all the precious treasures of family life and our culture. Yes, you may have to give some things up. But two things I want to mention as riders in the context of this exhortation in verses three and four. The first is notice the order of Paul's exhortation. First of all, he said, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Then he calls Timothy to be prepared to endure hardness. It's grace first, sacrifice second. Never call anybody, including young people, to live sacrificially unless you tell them why. We are prepared to sacrifice because we've tasted the grace of God and because we believe it's the greatest message in the history of the world. So when we've experienced the grace of God, we don't ask what must we give up? We ask, what can I give up? We don't ask what must I do, but where can I go? It's a completely different mindset. Sacrifice is driven by an experience of the grace of God in our lives. But secondly, intriguingly, if you read the two letters to Timothy, Paul also says to him, chapter four of this letter and elsewhere, that God has given us things richly and freely to enjoy, including meat and marriage that some people in those days were forbidding because they thought it was the last days. And Paul says, you can, you can embrace all these things uh, if they're received with thanksgiving. Tough for those who are vegetarians or those who argue that we should only be single, by the way. I don't want to get into a debate there. But Paul is saying, God is really a loving father who gives these gifts to be enjoyed. It's repeated in James's letter, chapter one. God is the father of lights in whom is no variableness, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And some commentators add, uh, richly to be embraced and received. So there's a creative tension here. On the one hand, Paul calls us to sacrifice. On the other, he exhorts us to enjoy all God's good gifts given from a loving father, which may include music, sport, family life, um, art galleries, um, playing chess, golf, or whatever it is. If it's not overtly immoral, it's a gift from God, richly and freely to be enjoyed, provided we don't idolize it. How do you hold the two together? The best answer I ever heard was from Amy Carmichael of Donavur, the great missionary in India. She said, I thank God for all his good gifts, which I really enjoy. The gift of my parents, my family life, my culture, music, and so on. But she said, I held them in the palm of an open hand. So when God called me to leave some of those things behind to go to India, they didn't have to be prized out of my hand. I gave them up because of the greater cause of the gospel, which in my case required it. That's the approach that we should use in terms of sacrifice. We do it joyfully if we're called to do so, because the, there is nothing greater than passing on the, the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's grace as found in him. So thirdly, are we prepared to endure hardness because of the gospel? If you're a young person, make the decision now. Don't sit on the fence. I always remember one evangelist I work with, Michael Green, said the role of the evangelist is to electrocute the fence that people are sitting on. So they make a decision one way or the other. Tonight, I'm asking, I'm trying to electrocute 
electrocute any fence you may be sitting on if you're a young person or you're undecided. Decide for Christ. Be prepared to, to take up the cross and uh, carry it if need be because there's nothing greater than following Jesus Christ. So do it before the conference is over. Fourthly, Paul goes on to use the illustration of the athlete in the next verse. And he talks about the athlete um, obeying the rules uh, for the races he's in. I think Paul is trying to get at here the importance of integrity and perhaps single-mindedness. And you know, there's nothing so striking uh, before the watching world as not just the verbal testimony of a Christian, but a lifestyle of integrity. You know, one of the most outstanding people I met from Ulster in that respect was the great member of the European Parliament, Sir Fred Catherwood, uh, whose father owned a bus company, I understand, in Nor Northern Ireland. Um, I had the privilege of speaking at his Thanksgiving service and at his funeral in Cambridge. And on that day in a packed church, four people brought eulogies, someone from Northern Ireland, about his contribution to the Northern Ireland um, peace treaty, someone else uh, from his world of business, where he was a negotiator between workers and uh, the captains, so-called captains of industry. Someone else uh, brought a eulogy from the European Parliament, where Fred had served as the vice president for some years. And I don't know if this man was a Christian or not, but he said, you know what I appreciated about Fred? He said he had a moral framework like granite. He said, we always knew clearly where he was coming from, but he was able to communicate it in such a nice way. And he said, we all bounced off it. And now in our negotiations, we don't have anybody like that. So that kind of moral framework, which drew from his Judeo-Christian heritage, is lost in some of our discussions. We need to pray that God will raise up more people like that for the world of politics and elsewhere today, incidentally. But Paul's, uh, Fred's testimony, his verbal testimony, was authenticated by the consistency of his lifestyle lived in the light of the biblical revelation. So should ours be, as we are called to be salt and light, living according to God's guidelines and God, God's rules, integrity before the watching world. There's so much more I could say about that, but for shortage of time, I have to pass by to the last exhortation Paul brought to Timothy, where he says in the next verse, to work like the, the hard-working farmer who will receive the fruit of his crops. Now, I know that there are lots of farmers in Northern Ireland. I'm sure there are some who have huge um, mechanically driven farms. Um, but in West Wales, where my wife comes from in Pembrokeshire, a lot of the farms are quite small. Some are mechanised. But I've never seen a fast-moving farmer in, South, in, in West Wales. And my father-in-law was a man of the land. He worked, walked slowly, systematically, consist, consistently. One year, if the crops didn't come, wasn't the end of the world. Because he knew that over the years, things would be even out. Some years would be better than others. You stored things in reserve. Uh, but eventually, you'd receive the fruit of your labour if you persevered. So what Paul is getting at here is the importance of endurance and persevering in the Christian life. As I'm sure you've heard somebody say, the Christian life is not a 100-meter sprint, it's a marathon. 
William Carey, the great missionary in India, was once asked, what's your primary gift? This is the man who oversaw the translation of the Bible into many languages. It's very dynamic. And he reflected for a moment and just said, I think my main gift is that I can plod. I don't give up and I can persevere in any given direction. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that says, many people begin well, but few finish well. That's what we should pray for ourselves, whether missionaries or living at home, that we finish the task which God gives us at the end of our lives. I mentioned the name of Michael Green, who died last year. I spoke at his funeral too. He was 88 the night before he died. I did a lot of university missions with Michael. He phoned me up. I was just about to speak in Dundee University in a week of evangelism. It was quarter past seven on the Monday night. He said, Lindsay, I'm calling you to say thanks for being such a good friend. I'm calling to say goodbye. Or as you say in French, French, he said, au revoir. I'll see you again. He said, I think I'm going to heaven tomorrow. He said, I'm having an operation in my heart. The doctor said, I've only got a 10% chance of survival. But he said, I think I finished the task God gave me to fulfill. I persevered to the end. I passed it on to you and others. It's your, it's your, you have to carry it on from here now. And he said, uh, uh, I've got copies of my books. He wrote over 50 books by my bedside. He said, I'm giving them out to all the nurses and the doctors and telling them, uh, everyone, follow Jesus. He's the best one to follow right at the end. And he did it as he was going into the operating theater. What a testimony. He finished the task. And he told me many times that was his prayer, that God would enable him to finish the task. Don't give up near the end. Don't become embittered. Some older believers do when they take knocks in life. Draw on the grace of God, which is the best antidote to bitterness. If you feel hard done by by other people, I often say to, to student workers, if you're going to be in Christian ministry or missionary, you must develop a bottomless capacity to handle disappointment. As the Bible says, don't put your trust in princes. Even the greatest of men and women can let you down. There are some who are consistent all the way through, but some have their failings come through. The only one to really trust entirely 100% is the God of all grace manifested in the person of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. The best answer to bitterness is to draw, is to experience the joy which comes from trusting in God's grace. I just mentioned one illustration in that respect before I close. It's about the missionary I appreciate perhaps most in history, Adoniram Judson, who's a great American Baptist missionary who in 1812 left Boston, one of the first American missionaries to leave the country. He went, he was heading for India, couldn't get in, accepted it was God's sovereign purpose for him to go next door into what was called Burma, these days Myanmar. Arrived there in 1812 with his wife Anne, who died within two years. Uh, he remarried the widow of another missionary, stayed till he died in 1850. Some people, it was so common in those days for missionary wives to die in childbirth or otherwise. Some people might say, oh, well, he just remarried somebody else. But actually his diaries indicate he went to his wife's grave every day for you and just wept and said, Lord, I can't continue. My best co-worker is gone. I feel as if half has disappeared. But anyway, the grace of God sustained him. He remarried. He lost six children. I lost one. Martin Luther lost three. John Calvin lost his only daughter. Have you lost any children? 
don't give in to bitterness god says for those of us who have a covenantal relationship with him read the words of david where he says he cannot come to me but i will go to him the hope of heaven in the covenantal relationship and trust god and go to him for grace Anyway, Judson had a problem with his lungs. He was taken out to sea for the salt air, died at sea. They just dropped his body over the side. They didn't even bury him in a grave. doesn't have a grave. There are probably about a dozen believers after 38 years of ministry, but he had just finished translating the Bible. And then he died. Most people would say he was a failure. No churches, no small groups. But the church grew subsequently, and 150 years later, a friend of mine was invited to speak at the 150th anniversary of the translation by Judson of the Bible into the Burmese language. And in the year 2000, his name was Paul, he went to speak there. Just before he spoke, he opened the Burmese Bible and read in English the only words he could understand there in small print, translated by Rev. A. Judson. So he turned to his translator, Matthew, and he said, you know this man? And his translator started to weep, and he said, Everybody in Burma knows him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he was hung upside down in chains, how he lost a wife, he lost children. He gave up his home and his reputation to join us. He died here with us and amongst us. But he didn't see much fruit from his ministry. When he died, we were maybe 12 to 15. Today, however, we're 600,000. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Judson, and he never saw it. Neither will you. Neither will I. You know, the work for most of us is sowing and sowing and planting and planting and trusting God to bring the fruit in due course. It's never in vain. If we persevere, read 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Stand firm and continue in the work which God has given you to do. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, just as Paul told Timothy, be like a farmer in persevering. I'm encouraging you this evening to follow the five exhortations of Paul to Timothy. Be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Invest the deposit of truth in others. Pass it on, trusting God will reproduce it. Be prepared to endure hardness if it comes. Don't look for it, but if it comes, be prepared for it as part of the cost of serving Christ. Live a life of integrity, like an athlete obeying the rules, not taking drugs. And then persevere right to the end like the farmer. And if you feel like giving up, read the, ne the last, the three words in the next verse with which Paul's exhortation concludes. Feel like giving up? Remember Jesus Christ. My argument stops there. What a great three words to finish with. Go home tonight remembering, giving thanks to God for Jesus Christ and his grace. Amen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first of our, uh, our brief looks at some of the high points in John's first letter. The reason why I thought it would be good to do this over uh, these, the evenings at the Missionary Convention was simply that John's letter is written to help Christians work out what it means to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. In the Old Testament, um, the people of God were called to be blameless, which essentially meant to live for God 
uh, rather than any other God. It wasn't quite the same thing as being perfect. It, it just meant living wholeheartedly for Jesus as sinful people, if you like, ahead of time. When it comes to the New Testament, under the New Covenant, I think John is the person who tries to express what it means to live a kind of blameless life in the context where Jesus has come, his spirit has been poured into our lives, we have been set free, and it is actually possible for people like us in the power of the spirit to live obedient lives, albeit um, not perfect lives, this side of the new creation. So John is really written, um, this letter is really written to help believers live wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus in the strength that he's given us through the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to look at over these evenings is five little kind of vignettes, little little kind of purple patches embedded in the letter, which really sum up the gospel and center us on what it means to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Here's the first. It's First John chapter one, verses eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, I think you'll agree that y- you can see that this is the gospel distilled to sh- two short sentences. I came across a letter of John Newton, um, author of Amazing Grace, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And, and Newton writes this. He says, the study of the whole scheme of gospel salvation respecting the person, life, doctrine, death and glory of our Redeemer is appointed to form our souls to a spiritual and divine taste. And so far as this prevails and grows in us, the trifles that would draw us from the Lord will lose their influence and appear divested of the glare with which they strike the senses, mere vanity and nothing. So Newton says, that if we're to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus, if we're to grow as followers of him, what we need to do is to continually soak ourselves in the gospel because what that will do is it will persuade us of the beauty of Jesus, of our own unworthiness, and also of the passing nature of everything that is not of Christ. And my prayer is that over these evenings, that these little glimpses into John's first letter will do exactly that. It will they'll fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. They'll convince us of our own sinfulness and they'll wean us off some of the, the wrong stuff or some of the insignificant stuff that we're spending our lives on. So I hope that that process will begin right now. As John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. It seems that there were some people to whom John was writing who had a defective view of God, who refused to face the reality of their own lives. And it had led them to a staggeringly arrogant view of themselves. Whatever they actually said out loud, they spoke and they acted as if their thoughts and motives and intentions were pure as the driven snow. When they examined themselves and their actions, they were actually terribly impressed with what they found. So John says, if we say we've no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us, is what he goes on to say. In verse 10, 
You see, if we don't take our innate sinfulness seriously, it has all kinds of implications. See, first, the refusal to, to accept the fact that we're both sinful and sinners actually interrupts our relationship with God because he's light. God's light. In him, there's no darkness. If we wander in in our darkness, just pretending it doesn't exist, we can't have any kind of intimate relationship with him. Second, it betrays a pride which is completely at odds with the gospel. Jesus Christ died for us. How can we say we've got no sin? And thirdly, it undercuts the need for forgiveness and leads us from a refusal to accept that we're sinful in theory to what is in practice a way of living which damages ourselves and other people. It robs us of the joy that we've made, that we've been made to share. John says repeatedly in this letter, I write these things so that all of our joy may be made complete. You see, if we're to live for the Lord Jesus together, we have to start with the right view of ourselves. If I ever get a tattoo, which granted is fairly unlikely, I'd actually like to have paragraph 5 of chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith emblazoned across my chest. Here's what it says. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. As Christians, we're sinful. We've got sinful instincts. We still sin. To say or think anything other than that is to deceive ourselves, to live in the dark, and to be honest, to make life very miserable for anyone who happens to deal with us. And yet this is something I keep bumping into time and time again as I move amongst Christian brothers and sisters here in Australia and, and all over the world. Leaders, I think in particular, are prone to forgetting that we are sinful, broken people who need Jesus' help every step of the way. I recently heard a comment about one senior leader who had to step down from ministry because of this. A friend said, if they are challenged in any way, which they always take as a threat, then the tables are turned and the challenger is made out to be the one at fault. This is classic manipulation. Even when we've been Christians for many years, even when we're in leadership, it's really possible to lose sight of our own innate sinfulness. It could happen to any of us. As a church father, Caesareus of Arles once wrote, Let no one deceive you, brothers, not to know your own sin is the worst kind of sin. It's so easy to start to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt in every situation. It's so easy to start to listen to our own take on life as, it's, as if it's the gospel. It's so easy to excuse ourselves simply saying, look, this is who I am. I am just misunderstood. Whilst gradually becoming blind to the ways in which we're hurting other people in our pride and our ungodliness. So what are we to do? The solution is stunningly simple and grace-filled. John says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to become experts in our own sin. We need to become deeply sensitive to our own, sin, to own sinful tendencies to lie and hide and avoid and manipulate. And then we need to run to Christ. And do you notice that when we do that, the Father's not merciful or gracious as we might expect. He's actually faithful. Isn't that so good? God has already committed himself to cleansing our sin. He's already secured and purchased that cleansing through the death of Jesus. And all we have to do is confess to come clean with him. And the marvelous thing is, 
that when we've deceived ourselves and other people, when we've let each other down and hurt our brothers and sisters, that even that can be turned around by God to bring deeper joy to us and them and deeper commitment to each other. It's really good to remember that even this week, we'll let each other down. We'll hurt each other. We'll disappoint each other. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Coming clean, stepping into the glare of God's light is always the way to go. And incredibly, God will even work in us through that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together. Will not the very moment of great disillusionment with my brother or sister be incomparably wholesome for me because it so thoroughly teaches me that both, both of us can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed that really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The bright day of Christian community dawns wherever the early morning mists of dreamy visions are lifting. Facing ourselves in view of the fact that God is light is to take hold of the gospel, and it is the road to joy. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to pretend with God or with each other. But together we can step into the light as those for whom Christ has died, as those for whom Christ has purchased forgiveness, as those for whom Christ stands poised to flood our lives with forgiveness. We are sinful people. But knowing that, Let's run to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, knowing that our God is faithful to forgive our sins and to work his Christ-like righteousness in us. Amen. simply come longing just to bring something that's a word that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the thing I made it when it's all about you all about you
every single breath I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things end Thank you for tuning in to Bangor Worldwide 2020 online. We hope that you will join us again tomorrow for the morning Bible study with Dr. Gary Miller. Further details of what's happening throughout each day can be had from the convention website, which is www.worldwide2020.org. Before you go, we'd like you to watch this little video which explains how you can give towards the missionaries and the mission agencies which Bangor Worldwide supports. We need your support more than ever this year since we cannot take up our offerings in the normal way. You can give via text or online or by check. So please watch the video, which you can also view again later for the details of how you can give to the support of mission through Bangor Worldwide. Thank you for watching. Good night.
We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.